If you'd like to, you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Now the last two weeks, I've really laid into evolution. The reason why I did that is many times people will um, not hold to the Bible because they think that because a scientist or a professor or somebody with a doctor's degree has said something that it must be right and that it must make sense. That's not the case with evolution. There's nothing that you, there's no way you can prove evolution. There's no evidence that evolution, the way they describe it, in other words, from molecules to man, has ever taken place. And um, yet it's a faith that they hold to very distinctly. I will tell you again that I take what the Bible says by faith. Can I prove that God created the world in six days? Can I prove it without a shadow of a doubt? Absolutely not. But here's the thing. In the words of this book, God's Word, God has never lied. There's nothing in this book as far as history goes that has ever been shown to be false. In fact, when somebody says there's something wrong with this Bible, they are proven wrong later on in their life. I think I've mentioned this before, but in the 1800s, um, archaeologists used to laugh at the Bible because they said, it's ridiculous. The Bible talks about a group of people called the Hittites. And there's no people called the Hittites. There's no evidence that there was a people called the Hittites. And then in the late 1800s, someone digging around um, this, uh, around central Turkey dug up a city and found the records of that city. And guess what? The people who wrote down their records were none other than the Hittites. And um, it even goes into even famous people in history. Some of y'all have ever heard of uh, the boy Pharaoh, King Tut. King Tut, when he died, his wife sent letters to the Hittite king asking for aid for her, um, to marry her, in fact, so that um, somebody in Egypt wouldn't take over the kingdom after her husband, King Tut, had died. All this evidence comes out to verify the fact that everything that the Bible says is true. Now, the Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks about science, it's always right. The Bible is not a history book, but when it talks of history, it is always correct. And if God did not lie with anything else, why do we think He lied when He told us about creation? Creation is the basis of all the Bible. Everything. Even when it comes to the gospel. Some people say, well, it took billions of years for man to come on this earth. And millions of animals had to die as they were evolving. Well, if that's the case, then here's the question. If there was death and disease in this world before man sinned, then why in the world did Jesus have to die on the cross? The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and what? Death by sin. But if we've had millions and billions of years of different animals living and dying, and ancestors of man living and dying, then why on earth would Jesus die on the cross when death was not caused by sin? Second, if, because of evolution, there's no such thing as Adam and Eve, why in the world would Jesus die on the cross for two mythical people and a sin that they really never did commit? No. Genesis is the basis for everything 
that we hold to be the truth. And Genesis is truth. Now, I've told you the falsehoods of evolution. Yet the evolutionists will come back and say, um, Jeremy, if your story is correct, how do you account for all the fossils? How do you account for the incredible coal deposits that we have in this world? How do you account for all the oil we have? After all, some of y'all may remember the old Sinclair gasoline signs. They always had a dinosaur on it. Why? Because they said those dinosaurs turned into oil. And so they always had a dinosaur on their oil signs. Well, if the earth is only 6,000 years old, how in the world could we possibly get all the coal and all the oil that we have today? Other people will say, well, what about all the different rock layers we have? Going back, they say, millions of years. How do you account for that? And the answer to that is this. It's accounted by a catastrophic event that occurred on our planet over 4,000 years ago. And that catastrophic event is recorded in our Bible in Genesis chapter number 6. We know it as the flood of Noah. Um, before we get into the flood of Noah, I just want to remind you what the Bible said in 2 Peter chapter number 3, verse 3. The Bible says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Stop right there. That is called today uniformitarianism. In other words, the processes that we see on this earth today are the processes that have been going on since the beginning of time. And because of this, they deny something. And here's what they deny. For this they are willingly ignorant of. And I've already told you the words willingly ignorant means dumb on purpose. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. They said because of their belief in what we call today uniformitarianism, they would deny both the creation, and they would also deny the flood. Yet it's the flood that accounts for the world that we see today. The world was very different before the flood. Do you realize that? People lived hundreds of years longer than we live today. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. Adam lived to be over 960 years old. The youngster of the group, Enoch, he lived to be over 360 years old and he just went on to heaven, never died. But we see that people will deny creation and they attack it through the flood. So let's look at uh, what the Bible says about the flood, but more importantly, I think it would be the case. If there was a flood upon this earth that covered everything with water, wouldn't you think there would be some evidence left over of such a catastrophic event? There'd have to be something left over. And there is. You can see it with your own two eyes. And I'm going to show you that tonight, the evidence of the flood. Now, Noah's flood, we find it in Genesis chapter number 6. Um, I just want to give you some major points of it. Number one, we see that the pre-flood people were wholly corrupt, they were wicked, 
and violent. In fact, the Bible says that violence filled the earth. Second, because of their sin and their corruption, God decided to destroy the world with a flood. By the way, let me stop right there concerning the flood. You know, sometimes today what we hear is that Noah's flood actually was the story of a localized flood. Some of y'all may have heard that before. One of the more uh, famous proponents of the idea that the flood of Noah was just a localized flood is a man by the name of Bob Ballard. Some of y'all may have heard the name Ballard. He discovered the resting place of the Titanic. If any of y'all ever heard of the ship, the Titanic, that sank. He was the discoverer of where it rested on the bottom of the earth. I mean, the bottom of the sea. Bob Ballard argued that the flood was just a localized event. Well, there's a problem with that. Number one, if it was a localized event, why would God tell Noah to build an ark that would take him over 100 years to build? Why wouldn't he just simply tell him to move to a place where the flood wouldn't be? And then why would God bring all the animals to the ark? Why wouldn't God just send the animals everywhere the flood wasn't going to be? And didn't God also say at the end of the flood that He would never again send that kind of flood to this earth? But how many of y'all have ever been around a flood? How many of y'all have ever seen a localized flood? If it was a localized flood, when God said He would never send that kind of flood again, then He lied. It couldn't be a localized flood. It was a worldwide global flood. God decided to destroy the world with a flood. However, God sees Noah and has mercy on him, and he decides to spare Noah, his wife, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God instructs Noah to build an ark to save his family, the animals, and anyone else who will enter. So let's talk about the ark. Noah's ark. Construction time, about less than 75 years. The size of Noah's ark was 515 feet by 85.8 feet by 51.5 feet. That is a big, big boat. Now, some people used to make the argument that it was impossible to build a wooden ship that big. They said it's never been done. And um, I remember seeing some shows on the flood just to make fun of it. They would show a large boat like the ark sitting in the water, and all of a sudden it would start to break apart under the stresses of a ship that big. Said wood can't support it. But they've quit using that argument since we saw um, a certain place. There's, by the way, a comparison of Noah's Ark to other ships. We see the Santa Maria that Columbus sailed to come to the New World. You see the largest wooden ship next to the flood, the USS Wyoming, then the Titanic, and then the largest ship ever built, the Queen Mary. And there's the Ark underneath. They used to argue that wooden ships couldn't possibly be built that big. But then, in Kentucky... Ken Ham and his group, Answers in Genesis, built a full-scale replica out of wood of the ark. You can go there to Williamstown, Kentucky. I've never been there, but my parents have and have seen it. They said it's amazing. But you can go there. You can see this replica of Noah's ark. You can go inside and look around in it. By the way, the people that built this ark were the Amish. The Amish do not use power tools. They use hammers, not hammer drills, but hammers. They use um, hand saws, and they build it. This is the largest wooden structure in the world, and it's a replica of Noah's Ark. And once they built it, you haven't heard the argument anymore that a wooden boat could not be built to that size. 
There's a picture of the interior of Noah's Ark in the Ark Encounter in Williamstown, Kentucky. If you ever have the time to go up there, um, go up there and take a look at it. I think you'd be amazed by it. But we can see that a boat like that can be built. It can be built out of wood. Outline of the flood again. Noah enters the ark seven days before the flood. It rained 40 days and nights. The waters prevailed another 110 days because the fountains of the deep were opened up. The water underground also was coming out, not just falling from the sky, but coming out from inside the ground. The waters decreased for another 73 days. After that, Noah sends out a raven and three doves to check for dry ground. And then Noah exits the ark about one year after he entered it. With such a catastrophic event upon this earth, what are the evidences of it? Well, I don't have it in the, um, in the slides yet, but when I was in Pennsylvania, I was looking on my tablet, and I saw an article by Fox News. It was back in November of last year. Fox News said, thousands of years ago, now they said it was about 100,000 years ago. I believe they have the years wrong on that, but they said, about 100,000 years ago, we've come in, we've realized through genetic studies that about 100,000 years ago, all the men and all the women descended from one man and one woman. And the strange thing is, 100,000 years ago, genetically, the animals we looked at descended from one dog and one dog, male and female, one cat and one cat. They said, we don't have an explanation for it. They said, but don't let the creationists think that this is Adam and Eve. We know it's not Adam and Eve. What we recognize is there was some cataclysmic event that reduced the population of the earth down to one man and one woman, they said about 100,000 years ago. They said, don't let the creationists think, though, that it's Adam and Eve because this was a cataclysmic event that caused it to happen. And you know what I thought? I wasn't even thinking of Adam and Eve. I was thinking about Noah and his wife. And what was the cataclysmic event that would reduce the populations of not just human beings, but the animal kingdom down to one male and female of each species? The flood. So let's look into it. How much room was on Noah's Ark? Well, if you put it in train car terms, 569 train cars. That's the space you had on Noah's Ark. Now, how many animals would it take, to, I mean, how many animals to have two of every kind Go on Noah's Ark. Now remember, when it comes to animals, we're not talking about species. The Bible does not use the term species. That's a new made-up word about 100, 200 years old. The Bible uses the term kind. They didn't put one chihuahua, male and female chihuahua on the ark, one male and female beagle, one male and female collie, one male and female bulldog. They didn't do it that way. They put one dog, boy, and one dog, girl on the ark and from those two dogs the genetic information in both those dogs produced every kind of dog we see today he didn't put one house cat and another house cat on the ark no he put two cats on the ark and in those two cats had the genetic information to make every cat produce every cat that we see today so in keeping that in mind how many train cars would it take to put every animal in it, um, every kind of animal that we have in the world today, how many trains cars would it fill? 
207. Less than half the space that would be on the ark. So why did God make the ark so big? Well, you have to have food for him to eat. And also, the Bible said that not just Noah and his family were welcome into the ark, but any person that would enter was welcome to go on the ark. There was room for anyone who was willing to go. So the ark was big enough to hold every animal that the Bible says would have went on the ark. By the way, keep in mind also that God didn't put the fish on the ark. The fish can swim fine in the water, wouldn't you agree? Um, God didn't put the, bu the bugs on the ark. Bugs, the Bible said that the only animals that went in the ark were those that had the breath of life in their nostrils. Bugs don't have nostrils. Do you know they don't have noses? Bugs breathe through their skin. And the amazing thing is, after a flood, the first thing you find are bugs. They can handle the situation. After all, do you think it would have been a good idea for Noah to put termites on the ark? Wouldn't have been a good idea. Bugs did not go on the ark. When you take those two things out, we're only talking about just the different kinds of land animals. And there was plenty of room for them. We've already talked about that it was not local. It wasn't metaphorical. It was not a crazy dream. Waters covered the whole earth. Now we're going to take a look at the evidence that we see right beneath our feet for the flood. Evidence number one is this. The incredible amount of flood legends in cultures all around the world. So far, there have been found over 270 different flood stories from all over the world. One of the biggest arguments against the truthfulness of the story of Noah's Ark is this. Some of y'all may have heard it in high school or college. It's a story from the Babylonian tablets, um, a Babylonian story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, Gilgamesh, the main character, meets a man by the name of Utnapishtim. And Utnapishtim is the Babylonians' version of Noah. There is a great flood. He builds a big old box. He puts his family in it with all the animals. They survive, and as a gift, the gods give Utnapishtim eternal life. And Gilgamesh makes a journey and meets this person. They say that the story of Gilgamesh is a thousand years older than the story we have written down in the Bible. The Epic of Gilgamesh would have been told in Abraham's day, and they said what the Jews did, the Israelites did, was just borrow that old Babylonian story and made it their own. What's the problem with that? After all, they say the Epic of Gilgamesh is a thousand years older. Here's the problem. It's not just the Babylonians that was telling the story. People from all over the world was telling the story. Let me show you the different people that had a story about the flood. Some of these are incredible. One of them is the Chinese. And let me tell you, the Chinese did not get their story from the Babylonians. They lived too far away to be able to do that. The Chinese consider Fuhai to be the father of their civilization. He, his wife, three sons, and three daughters. Does that sound familiar to you? Escaped a great flood. They were the only people left alive on the whole earth. After the flood, they had many children from whom the whole earth was repopulated. Sounds pretty similar to what we have in the Bible, doesn't it? After all, who got on the ark? Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three sons, and their wives, eight people, just like the story from China. There's another culture in China, the Mao culture, who had their own flood legend. Listen to this one. The Mao flood legend features Nua, not Noah, 
Nuah, his wife, and their sons, Lohan, Loshin, and Jehu. Sounds pretty similar to our story, doesn't it? They built a big wide boat that the family, animals, and birds got on and floated through the waters. Nuah sent out a, bu- a dove to find out if the flood waters had gone down and bring him tidings. When the waters went down, Nuah and those on the boat got off and made a sacrifice to the mighty. Sounds pretty similar to the Bible, wouldn't you agree? The Hawaiian flood legend. Let me tell you something. The Hawaiians did not get their story from the Babylonians. They lived on an island. They were a little separated from everybody else. But listen to this flood legend. Long after the death of Kunihana, the first man, the world became a wicked, terrible place to live. There was one good man left. His name was Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled with animals. The waters came up over all the earth and killed all the people. Only Nu'u and his family were saved. That's the Hawaiian flood story. The Toltec legend. The Toltec people were people that lived in Mexico um, during, contemporary with the Aztecs, if you ever heard of the Aztec civilization. In Mexico, there is an ancient Toltec account of a global flood. This story recounts how there was a first world which lasted less than 2,000 years. Then a great flood came and destroyed the first world, covering even the highest mountains with water. A few people escaped the flood in something like a closed chest. Following the flood, these people began to multiply so that many people were once again on the earth. These people lived in Mexico. They had no contact with the Babylonians. How in the world did people like the Chinese, people like the Hawaiians, and people like the Toltecs have a story so similar to what we read in our Bible? Let me explain it to you. There is an event upon this earth called a global flood, and it was the most incredible thing that anybody had experienced. When Shemham and Japheth got off that ark, they told their children, who told their children, who told their children about the incredible event when the entire world was destroyed by a flood. They all spread out all over the world, and they continued telling their story. Now, the Bible story comes from the mouth of God. This is the Word of God. It is inspired, it is inerrant. The stories from the flood legends were passed down through generations. So some things get lost, some things get mixed up, yet the stories are similar. Why? Because all these people are remembering down through time an incredible event that occurred upon this earth. Evidence one for the flood, the many flood legends across the world. Um, I won't do the Aztec story, but it's basically the same thing we've heard before with the Toltec. Evidence two, fossils of sea creatures high above sea level due to the ocean waters having flooded over the continents. Now, one of the arguments I always get when I talk to people about the flood is this. Jeremy, do you really believe that the oceans covered all the mountains? After all, Mount Everest is over five miles tall. Are you telling me that five miles of water covered this earth to cover over Mount Everest? No, the earth wasn't um, covered by five miles of water. Do you understand that Mount Everest is five miles tall now, but a long time ago it wasn't that tall? 
is continuing to rise up Mount Everest. So are the rest of the mountains. They continue to rise up. It didn't have to be five miles tall to cover it. In fact, when we look at fossil evidence, we look at the Himalayan mountains where Mount Everest um, abides. Here's an incredible thing. You see this picture down here? Those are um, actually um, fossils of marine creatures. And do you know where they found them? They found them on top of the Himalayan mountains. Yes, those mountains that are miles and miles tall. No, I'm not saying that the floodwaters were miles and miles deep covering those mountains, but what I am saying is this. At one time, the Himalayas were not as tall as they are now. And at that point in time, the waters covered them. But how else would you explain that on the tops of these mountains we would find marine creatures? The only way that could have happened is if at one time those mountains were under the water. Second, Evidence three, rapid burial of plants and animals. I don't know how well you can see this picture, but what you're seeing here is you're seeing one fish swallowing another fish. And as it was in the process of eating the fish, it died. And it was buried so quickly that you have it in that last action before it died. That's a quick burial. We see this everywhere. Do you see this faint image in the rock there? Do you know what that is? That's a jellyfish. That is a fossilized jellyfish. Now how on earth do you get a jellyfish to turn into a fossil? Only one way. It had to be buried immediately upon death. And that's what we see everywhere. We find extensive fossil graveyards of exquisitely preserved fossils. Now if you've ever been out in the woods and found a dead animal that's been dead for a while, what do you see of the animal if it's been dead for a long time? Maybe a few bones? Anybody ever gone through the woods and found the skull of an animal? Do you ever really find a complete skull? Even the skulls sometimes fall apart. You don't find the jaw. You just find the top of the head. Some of the teeth are missing. In other words, bones wear out very quickly. Yet we have exquisitely preserved fossils. The only way that can happen is if it was buried in a rapid manner. And if we had a worldwide flood, the forces of the water, the sediments falling on them, would have buried these things quicker, quicker than they had time to decay or for other animals to feed on them. Look at another picture. Here you have the picture of an ichthyosaurus. What you see here, if you look very closely, you see the mama, and it's giving birth to a baby. Actually giving birth to a baby and at that point of giving birth, it died and was buried. The only way you could have a fossil preserved at that moment in time that is actually explained in a reasonable way is that it was buried in a very rapid manner. And what mechanism do we have that would bury animals like that all over the world? A worldwide flood. Another one, this is probably my favorite fossil. If you take a very close look, you see this fossil right here? There's a little bitty pickaxe right beside it. So this is a very big fossil. Do you know what that is? It's the trunk of a tree, petrified wood. This trunk of the tree is running through hundreds of rock layers. Now the evolutionists 
the geologist who doesn't believe the Bible will tell you that those rock layers took thousands or millions of years to form. Here's my question. If that's the case, are you telling me that tree stood up dead for millions of years without falling over? No termite got a hold of it? It never decayed? It just stood in place for millions of years so that all these rock layers could form around it. Does that make sense? Do trees do that? Absolutely not. What's the only thing that would make sense for a fossil to be found that way? The tree was standing when the flood came, and the sediments fell down around it, preserving it, petrifying it in the position that we see today. This is evidence of a flood. Evidence four. Rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas. In other words, if it's a worldwide flood, it's going to carry sediments not just in one place. It's going to dump its sediments all over the world. Do we have evidence of sedimentary layers or rock layers that we can find in one part of the world and then in another opposite part of the world? Absolutely. We find rock layers that can be traced all the way across continents. Think of this. Even between the continents, and physical features in those strata indicate they were deposited rapidly. For example, the Tapete Sandstone and Red Wall Limestone of the Grand Canyon can be traced across the entire United States, up into Canada, and across the Atlantic Ocean to England. How many of y'all have ever heard of the White Cliffs of Dover? Anybody? The White Cliffs of Dover, the chalk beds that made those, can be traced across Europe into the Middle East and are also found, the same chalk beds that made the White Cliffs of Dover are found in the Midwest of the United States and in Western Australia. Iceland, I mean, inclined layers within the Cocachino limestone of the Grand Canyon are testimony to the 10,000 cubic miles of sand being deposited by huge water currents within days. Think about that. Just look at the White Cliffs of Dover. We've seen it in pictures before. Not only is it found in England, it's found in the Middle East, it's found in Africa, it's found in the Midwest of the United States, and it's found in Australia. If there was no worldwide flood, how did the chalk that was in England get down to Australia? Well, let me tell you how that happened. There was a worldwide flood that deposited layer upon layer of sediment. Since it was a worldwide flood, the sediment would be deposited around the world. And the evidence of these vast areas of the same sediments, found not only in one island, but on different continents, points to evidence of a worldwide flood. Second, sediments transported long distances. We find the sediments in those widespread, rapidly deposited rock layers to have been eroded from distant sources and carried long distances by fast-moving water. For example, the sand of the Cocachino sandstone of the Grand Canyon in Arizona had to be eroded and transported from the northern portion of what is now the United States and Canada. All that sand that makes up that one layer in the Grand Canyon came from Canada and was transported across the United States to the Grand Canyon. How in the world could that have happened? Well, let me tell you. 
At one time, there was a flood that covered the entire earth, and the sediments that it picked up deposited it not just in the same regions, but in regions all around the world. Second, here's one that you can see very clearly. Evidence six, rapid or no erosion between rock strata. Now, what am I talking about here? Do you see this picture here? Can you see the different layers of rock? Up here at the top, you have a lighter colored stone. Underneath, you have a darker. And do you notice in between the two, they are divided almost with a razor's edge? There's no evidence of any erosion. Hey, how many of y'all had rain fall in your yard today? How many of y'all been enjoying the rain we've been having for the past, has it been a year? <laughs> One thing about rain, have you ever noticed it? If you have ground that doesn't have a lot of grass growing on it, what does the rainwater do to your ground? It erodes it, does it not? Do you realize that at one time, these rocks at one time were just sand or dirt? And they build up over time. Now the evolutionists said it took thousands or millions of years for these layers to form and turn from sand into rock. Are you telling me that when that sand and dirt formed for millions of years, that it never rained? That the wind never blew? If there was rain and wind blowing for millions of years on dirt, what do you expect to happen? You expect to find erosion, wouldn't you agree? But there's no erosion in these rocks. They are razor edge between each other. There's no erosion. There's no mixing of the different types of um, rock and soil. There's no evidence of any missing millions of years of erosion. Millions of years does not account for what we're seeing. What accounts for it is different rock layers being set down so quickly there was no time for erosion. And what would cause that? A flood that covered this earth 4,000 years ago. It took a year before the water went down. And during that time, it sifted and it allowed to lay down in layers different rock, I mean, different sediment, forming layers of rock that we see today with no erosion between the layers. Evidence six, many strata laid down in rapid succession. Now I want you to pay attention to this picture here. These are rock layers. Can you see them? The different layers of rock? This is in the Grand Canyon. I want you to notice something. Do you see the folding of the rock? I got a question for you. Has anybody ever tried to fold a rock? Anybody ever tried to bend a rock? What does a rock do when you try to bend it? It breaks. Does it bend? No, rocks don't bend, they break. Yeah, look at these rock layers. What's happened to them? They bent. How did that happen? This is sandstone, by the way. It wasn't a volcanic rock. It wasn't that they were heated up and they bent. No, that's not how that formed. Let me show you another one. Look at that one. You see, here's the rock layer. Then it shoots straight up, 90-degree angle. How does that happen without the rocks breaking? Evolutionists don't have an answer for it. But can I give you an answer for it? 4,000 years ago, there was a flood. And that flood deposited rock layers. And that, those sediments that became those rock layers were wet at one time. And as it laid down, sometimes it wasn't laid down in straight lines. Sometimes it bent. 
because of different forces on the ground as it was still wet, making all those different rock layers we see today, bent but not broken. Evolution, geology, modern atheistic geology can't explain that, but the flood sure can. Evidence for the flood, the Grand Canyon. Question, did the Colorado River run uphill? How many of y'all have ever seen a river run uphill? Doesn't do that, does it? You always run down. Water always follows gravity. We see a problem here. The Colorado River enters the Grand Canyon at an elevation of 28,000 feet above sea level. It exits the Grand Canyon at 1,800 feet below sea level. So between the beginning to the end, there is a drop of 1,000 feet. No problem yet for the river. The problem comes in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Do you see this area right here that the river has to run through? These are mountains. And you know how high they are? They are 6,900 to 8,500 feet above sea level. In other words, at one time, before the Grand Canyon formed, the Colorado River, to get from this point to this point, had to go through this area right here, which was... 4,000 feet higher than where the river entered in. Rivers don't do that. It makes no sense at all. How in the world could that little river, the Colorado River, form such a big canyon? It couldn't. But do you know how it did? 4,000 years ago, there was a flood. And the flood waters, when they came off the earth, carved out a big spot that we know today is the Grand Canyon. I'll show you how that worked in just a minute. It was not a um, little river. It was a global flood that formed the Grand Canyon. Let me show you a picture. Maybe some of y'all may remember this in the news, but it was a long time ago. It was before I was born. Some of y'all think I'm really old. But um, if you think I'm really old, let me tell you something that'll make you feel old. Do you realize that um, Elvis died before I was born? How many of y'all remember Elvis? If you remember Elvis... Y'all are really old, okay? In Idaho, on the Teton River, they built a dam in 1976 called the Teton Dam. And in June of, of um, 1976, they began to fill that dam. They had completed it, and then they allowed the dam to start filling up. And on June 5th, a problem sprang as the dam began to fill the reservoir. Here's the dam. June 5th, 1976. Now, if you notice, it's a, you can see the dam right here, and you notice there is some removal of dirt. It's starting to fall away. You can notice there's some wet marks. They began to notice early on June 5th, 1976, that water was beginning to seep through the dirt walls that made up this dam. It was small at that point. At, this is about 8 o'clock in the morning on June 5th, 1976. This is at 12 o'clock, June 5th, 1976. The dam now is completely broken. Let me go back. You see the bridge right there of the dam that goes across the dam? Here's the reservoir. Let's look at it again. There's your bridge again. That little thing that we saw four hours earlier on night, June 5th, 1976 is now broken into a big um, cascade of water. By 8 o'clock, it was all done. The water was gone. And this is what was left. That's huge. You see this little circle down here? Those are people. 
Do you see how much? What does that look like to you, by the way? Does it look like a small version of the Grand Canyon? Do you see how high those points are above those people right there? Hundreds of feet above them. This formed in less than 24 hours. Why? Because a large reservoir of water broke through the barrier that was holding it and formed a canyon as all the water flowed through. Now think about that for a minute and think about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon, they'll talk about there's ancient lake beds that sit above the start of the Grand Canyon. These ancient lake beds, they said, dried out years ago. I agree. They dried out 4,000 years ago. The barrier that was holding all that water back from receding into the oceans after the flood one day broke in the region that we know today as the Grand Canyon. And just as we see with the Teton Dam in 1976, those same forces, to a greater extent, made what we know today as the Grand Canyon. Some of y'all like to go hiking. I would recommend, if you do, to go down below Columbus, Georgia, right near the state line between Georgia and Alabama. There's a canyon down there. Georgia has two canyons, by the way. One canyon's up here, um, and that is called um, Cloudland Canyon on the top of Lookout Mountain. The other canyon is below Columbus, Georgia. It's called Providence Canyon. It is also known as the Little Grand Canyon. It is one-eighth the size of the Grand Canyon. And do you know what? 150 years ago, the canyon didn't exist. How did it form? Bad farming. 150 years ago, eroded the soil to one-eighth the size in just 150 years. You don't need millions of years in a little river to form the Grand Canyon. All you need is a global flood. By the way, there's bigger canyons on other planets. This one is a canyon on Mars, the largest canyon in our solar system. Do you know how the evolutionists and the geologists explain the canyon on Mars? They don't say a little river ran through that. They say at one time a large amount of water came through and carved out that canyon on Mars. That's the argument for the canyon on Mars to form. Yet they will not use the same argument for the canyon on our world. Do you know why? Because if they did, they would be admitting there's evidence for the flood. Next, Glen Rose, Texas. I've never been there. Have you ever been to Glen Rose, Texas? No. Out in the middle of nowhere, actually, in Texas. Yet this small town back in, during the uh, Depression had a flood. And the flood knocked out some, um, some sediments around the river. And they found the bare limestone rock, the bedrock of that river. It got exposed. And you know the amazing thing? When it got exposed, they found dinosaur tracks. They found that very interesting. But along with the dinosaur tracks, they found human footprints fossilized in the exact same rock. You ever heard that story before? Do you know there's a museum there? You can go see these very same. You can go to the park. There is a park made after this. And you can go and see these footprints. How many of y'all have ever heard of that before? A few people have. Most people haven't. Let's see some pictures. If you look very closely, do you see these tra um, tracks of dinosaurs going this way? They're going in this direction. But if you look, going through the dinosaur tracks right here, human footprints. Let me show you one that was cut out of the rock. You see the dinosaur footprint right there? It's stepping into a human track that was already laid down. You know, the person that runs this museum is a creationist by the name of Dr. Carl Baugh. 
Nova came out in the 1980s to do a story on it. They brought in the evolutionists for them to explain the fossils. Carl Boss said as they were digging up new footprints, finding dinosaur tracks and human footprints, the evolutionists the entire time kept his back turned from what they were doing and would not look at it when they said, would you please look at this and explain it? He would not look at it. When the Nova cameraman came and asked the evolutionist about it, do you know what he said? He said, I saw no evidence that would make me believe that dinosaurs and people ever lived together. Carl Baugh said the entire time he refused to even look at what they were digging up. Go to Glen Rose and take a look at it. Amazing find. There's a park, there's a museum dedicated to this find. Since you never hear about it. Evidence of a flood. What now? The Bible's history is reliable throughout. From the creation of man, from the dust of the ground, to the worldwide flood, to the coming of Jesus Christ. Just reading the evidence isn't enough. The message of salvation, founded in the Bible's history, is also true. And God wants us to accept the gift of salvation He freely offers us. Understand this, many people reject salvation and reject Christianity and reject the Bible for one reason. They've been told their entire lives that God did not create this world in six days. That the flood never occurred. But everything we see today was caused by millions and billions of years of the evolutionary process. And because of that, kids in school... By the way, some of y'all say, as long as I keep my kids in church, they can go to that school. Do you realize you're sending them to an, ev- I mean, an atheistic um, training ground? Eight hours a day, they sit through school and hear their teacher five days a week tell them that everything they've read in the Bible is not true. They may not say the Bible's not true, but in what they teach, everything they say is pointing against it. Why are we surprised when they turn 18 years old and they get out of the house and they move on, they quit coming to church? You know why? They quit believing this is true. And honestly, if you don't believe that Genesis 1 is true, that God created the world in six days, if you don't believe that Genesis 6 is true, that there was a worldwide flood, if those things are wrong and God lied about that, or if you don't want to call God a liar, God was mistaken in what He said, then why do we believe anything like John 3.16? If God lied about the creation, did He lie about John 3.16? If God was mistaken about the flood, was He mistaken about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, we have to stand true on the Word of God. The Bible is true. As as, um, one of the apostles said, let God be true and every man a liar. If I ever say anything that contradicts the Word of God, don't believe me, believe the Bible. If the Pope ever says anything, or continues to say anything that contradicts the Word of God, don't believe the Pope, believe the Bible. Always trust God's Word. And don't let different people turn our children from the truths of God's Word. We allow them to listen to these lies. And we never give them the the explanation of why it's not true. This right here shows you there is a reason to have faith in God's Word. We do not abide by blind faith. No, there is a reason for what we believe. 
And we can always trust that God's Word is true. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, I hope you'll do that before it's too late. You have an opportunity to do it in just one minute. You be faithful to the Lord and be obedient to Him, and I promise God will bless you. I'm going to ask Brother Randy if he would to come. We'll close our service with that. I hope this has been a blessing to you. If you have any questions, um, you can ask me after, and I'll do my best to answer them. But I hope this has been a help to you. God bless you.